All right. So for those of you that don't know, our, uh, our kids back there in the back, our uh, kids is not the right term. What should I use? Young adults, maybe? Uh, young students? We call these our students. So back there, they would be our young students, maybe. I'm not sure what the right term is. But you know what I'm talking about, the ones that are 12 and under, those back there? Yeah, so they're back there studying, and they're going through VBS material right now. So uh, they're actually talking about Noah today, and we were talking about in our, um, our little prayer time. We always have prayer time here uh, with, our, with our leaders, uh, our worship team, and, and everybody running the sound, and, and me and everybody. We meet back here, and we pray before the service, and we were talking about Noah, and we were talking about the size of the ark. Like, you know, like that would have been really big. Right, So we were talking about what's a current day illustration for something really big like the ark. And we said, we were bouncing things back and forth. We were talking about the height of a hospital and blah, 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 you know. And I said, well, probably something that would be very comparable today would be a modern college football stadium, right? Like you would struggle to fit the ark inside a modern college football stadium. Like that's hard to wrap your mind around, is it not? I, I mean, I, we were talking about it, you know, and, and I said, well, you know, this is a time of year where idol worship is really prevalent, so let's talk about college football. So I said that everybody knows how big a college football stadium is, so let's, let's use that as a reference point. And, and we were talking about, like, can you imagine God giving, giving Noah the, the blueprints for this thing, and he's like, oh, yeah, here is how big it's supposed to be. Can you imagine how incapable Noah must have felt when he was getting the blueprints from God for this thing that he was supposed to build? I'm talking about no cranes. I mean, we've got cranes and all kinds of things to make stuff out of now. But, I I mean, this was just a a man and his family building the ark. And, I mean, it just blows my mind to think about how big that was and how, like, incapable he must have felt when he was trying to build that thing. You know, the only thing I, I, I can kind of relate it to is you know the movie Evan Almighty, right? Everybody's seen that, right? Uh, but yeah, I'm not telling you to go watch the movie, cause, but uh, it, I am because it's really funny. But anyway, so I mean like to look at these huge beams that he's putting together, it really gives you an idea of the grandeur and the size of, you know, how big and how insurmountable that task may have looked and how physically inept it, you must have felt to be thinking about, I have got to build this thing. I got to build it by hand. Me and anybody that I can get around me that will help me build it, we got to build this thing by hand. Now, obviously, he had the, the hand of God at work, and when, when God is present, all things are possible, and we know that. But I know that from the outside looking in, he must have looked at this thing and go, there is no way. There's no way I'm going to be able to accomplish this. Have you ever felt like you were physically unable to do something? Like you look at a task, and you're like, I don't have the strength to do that. I'm going to give you a quick story real quick of something that I, I had happen in my own life. And some of you have heard this story before, but I'm a preacher, so I repeat myself. So uh, <laughs> I was at the beach, and I believe it was in Jacksonville, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. But we were at the beach, and um, we saw these guys out on a kayak, and they were like bobbing up and down. They weren't in the kayak. The kayak was, right, was upside down, and the guys were outside of the kayak, and they were waving, right? Well, me... In my feeble mind, I thought maybe, hey, they're in trouble, you know, like their kayak is not right side up, it's upside down, and they're waving. Maybe they're trying to get somebody to help them, right? So I thought I was making the the right move. I went up to the, the nearest lifeguard, and I said, hey, man, there's some people out there, a long way out there, and they are waving. 
Like as in, maybe they need help. And, and the lifeguard dude, in his great intelligence, he's, he's sitting there. Yeah. And that's all he gave me. Yeah, I think you're right. I said, well, hey, man, can you, can you like, watch him and make sure that that's what's going on? He's like, yeah. And that's all I got out of him. So I watched him watch them for, for several minutes. I'm like, I'm standing over there on the beach, and I'm watching him. And he's like, he's like, he'd look over there, and then he'd go back to just doing this thing, you know. And he's like, yeah, he wasn't really concerned about it. And they kept waving, and I was like, I told Cash, I said, I got to do something. I can't just sit here on the beach. Those guys out there waving, uh, and here I am on the beach, and, and the lifeguard's not doing anything. I got to do something. But let me tell y'all, they were way out there. When I, I don't know, like I can't give you how many meters or feet or miles or what, but they, they were way out there, okay? And I looked at myself and I go, you're not a swimmer, dude. Like this is not, you're not cut out for this. This, this is not your forte. Well, I said, you know what? This is one of those points in life where you got to say, I'm either going to do something or I'm not. And there will be times in your life when you have that same thing. Like I'm either going to do something or I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to, be like everybody else on the beach and just have a good time and try to ignore what it is I'm supposed to be doing, right? All right. So, of course, I jump in, start swimming out towards those guys. And by the way, if I didn't tell you before, I'll tell you now. It was a long way out there. I'm talking about a long way. It's a long way out there. Because I figured that out about halfway out there. I stopped to try to catch my breath because I couldn't really breathe. And I went, that's a long way out there, y'all. Um, so anyway... So I finally get out to these guys. I barely have any breath in my lungs. And, and there's this one guy that had been waving. He had actually flagged down a kite surfer that had stopped and dropped down in the water to try to provide some assistance. And I was like, well, here's even more evidence that these guys are in trouble. He's flagged somebody else down to try to help them. Well, the kite surfer, he's trying to hold on to his kite, and he's trying to hold on to this guy. And, and this guy is just... I don't, know, I don't know what happens to people when they get around water or get in a situation where they don't feel comfortable or whatever, but this guy is really pretty much catatonic. He just won't say anything, right? And, and I, I, I go over to him, and he's holding on to the kayak, which is still afloat, which is a good thing, right? So he's holding on to something that's still afloat. And, and I go, hey, man, I got an idea. Why don't we go that way? where the sand is, and that way we'll be safer there as opposed to staying out here. And I'll tell you what he said to me. Let me tell you what he said. He said this. That's all I got. That's all I got. The dude was just silent. So I start dragging him and the kayak. I'm like, okay, we're going back towards the sand because we can stand up there out here, we can't stand up, I'm pretty sure. So let's go to where we can stand up. So I start dragging him back. And, and he, okay, and I'm like, well, maybe he's coming too. So finally, I get about halfway back. And, and believe it or not, he starts swimming on his own with the kayak back towards the sand. I'm like, hey, you could have been doing this a long time ago. You know, instead of flagging down me, trying to flag down somebody, you could have just been doing what we're doing now. Without any instruction. So I see, okay, he's doing good. He's on his way back. You know, he's going to be able to stand pretty soon, so that's good. So I look at him, I say, hey, man, was anybody with you? You imagine his response, right? You already know what I'm going to tell you. He said, hey, 
was there anybody in the kayak with you? Because it dawned on me, you know, typically kayaks usually have more than one person in them. He didn't say a word again. So I turn around and I look, and there's this other guy out there bobbing up in the ocean doing this, right? So if I didn't tell you before, I'll tell you again. It was a long way out there to where these guys were. And I got one guy halfway back to the beach, and the other guy, he's way out there too. And I got to go, after I'd gotten this guy safe, I got to go back out there to get the other guy. And, and I, I go out there, and you know what I do? I get beside him, and I, you know what I say to him? I say, hey, man, the beach is that way. Why don't me and you go that way to where we can stand up, and then we'll be able to breathe and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So let's, let's go that way, you know? Well, this guy apparently doesn't have a problem speaking because all he does as he and I swim beside each other, which he could have been swimming on his own, but he needed me to swim beside him apparently. So all he did was cuss the other guy that was in the kayak with him. He's like, this guy talked me into getting on this kayak and he, lots of expletives in between there. And, and like, he didn't even speak English. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Aha, uh -huh. now, now, now I'm getting somewhere, okay. No wonder he didn't know what I was saying. Okay, the guy didn't speak English, all right? So I'll, I'll give him that. But still, he knew where the beach was, okay? Like he knew he could swim towards the sand and still have the same result, right? Like I didn't, that translates in any language. Let's go that way, you know, like. So anyway, so this other guy, I spend the next, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes swimming back to the beach alongside this guy. I got, look, I am dead tired. I am absolutely exhausted by this point. And all I got in my ear is this guy cussing the other guy that had talked him into getting the kayak with him. So I, I tell you all that to tell you that, that um, there, there's an important moral to this story in case you hadn't picked up on it. It was a long way out there to where those guys were. And I felt extremely physically inept to be able to be going out there swimming. I'm not a swimmer. I mean, I can swim, I can stay afloat, but I, I'm not like a, some kind of professional swimmer. These guys needed a lifeguard is what they needed, which incidentally, I must tell you about the lifeguards. So this lifeguard that I had flagged down, I told Kasha before I left, I said, if it looks like I'm getting in trouble, tell him again, hey, my husband went out there to save those people that you wouldn't save. You might want to help him. So as, I'm, as I make my second trip out there, uh, actually it was the first trip out there to, to kind of pull the guy in the kayak back. I see the red, like, lifeguard truck, right? And I was like, oh, thank the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You have answered a prayer here. And it's full of these buff, blonde guys, you know, with the things wrapped around them. And, you know, they're hanging on the outside of the truck in this Baywatch moment. And they're all like, I'm like, all right, well, I don't care what they look like. Can they save me? That's all I care about. So, y'all, they stopped, like, 100 yards down the beach from where I was and start running into the ocean. And I'm going... That's not where I am. I'm over here. And they get out in the water. <laughs> this, I know it sounds like I'm making this up. It's, this is real. I couldn't make this up. They get out in the water, and they're standing there in the surf, all buff and blonde, and, you know, they got their little, little lifesaver things on, and they're, like, looking out in the ocean, like, what do we do now? And I'm, <laughs> I'm going, God, you're teasing me. Why are you teasing me like this? So they get back in the truck go back down the beach. Finally, they get, from, they get directly across from where I am. By this time, I've taken the second guy all the way back to the point where we can both stand up, 
And we both walk back to the place where the lifeguards are standing in the surf just like this, you know, ready to rescue us. Yeah, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And, uh, and sure enough, I just like, I, I was so flabbergasted by that point. I just went up to the beach and just laid down. I was like, somebody give me CPR or something. I just, this is not a good day. Um, thankfully, I didn't die. They didn't die, so it was a good day. But I tell you this, it was a long way out there. Have you ever had situations in your life where you were put up against a challenge, you felt like, like physically you were just incapable, like there's no way that based on what I have physically that I'm be able to accomplish this challenge? Well, today we're still in the book of Judges. We're going to jump back to the book of Judges. We're going to talk about a guy who, if you just at first glance wouldn't recognize exactly what's going on here. Uh, but, but this guy has some physical challenges, believe it or not, and that is actually being used by God as an instrument for God's glory to be proclaimed. And this guy's name is Ehud. Ehud is his name. Uh, we've been talking about what happens with Judges, and that is that uh, the nation of Israel, uh, they sin against God, and then God has to allow these armies to come in and attack them, or they fall under rule of, a, uh, of another army or something like that, and then that God sends a judge to go and rescue them, right? And uh, we've been talking about how that goes on and on and on through the book of Judges. You see them rebel against God, and they come back to God, rebel against God, come back to God, and this back and forth thing that happens. Well, I want to point out to you something that it says, and this is not going to be on the screen, but I just wanted to read this to you um, in, in Judges chapter 3. Toward the beginning of the chapter, it says this, these people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. It doesn't just say like, like God um, uh, uh, you know, allowed these people to come in. It says God actually intentionally left these armies so that they would be tested to see what they would actually follow through with what they were supposed to follow through with, and that is to worship the one true God. They were actually there for the purpose of testing them to see if they really had faith. Now, I didn't write that. It's, it's in there, and you should go and look. It's, it's in Judges chapter 3. It's in verse 4. You should go look for yourself. It's in there. It says that God did this intentionally. He did this intentionally. He left these people around, and then he goes on to say, it says they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters and Israelite daughters, and, uh, and, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. So the Israelites had a choice, right? So this is the land that God had promised to them. So like, look, if you'll be my people, then I'll take care of you. I'll have my hand on you. You're going to be my chosen people. But if you start worshiping another God, I'm going to lift my hand of protection off of you, and you're going to have to deal with some stuff so that eventually you'll come back to me, right? So that's the whole thing in a nutshell, what God is doing here, right? And here these people are left intentionally for the purposes of testing them to see if they have real faith. They've got to remember that the place that they have, the land of milk and honey that they're living in right now, is a place that God has given them. God has promised it to them. God has opened the door, and now they're living there. And now what happens? They start to rebel against God. Doesn't that look like human nature? Doesn't that look like all of us, myself included? Man, God gives us something that is beautiful and wonderful and nice and amazing. And, and what do we do? We rebel against God and we choose to try to do something else. See, God's command was for them to not intermarry with these other people because that would, that, and, and obviously we see what happens here, right? So, so God said, don't intermarry with these other people. You stay true to your people. That way we won't dilute, dilute the, the, the true religion that we have, the one true God that we are focused on. And what happens? They start to intermarry, 
And then the other gods get brought into everything. And all of a sudden, before you know it, the Israelites are tied up in this thing where they're worshiping other gods. And that's exactly what God had told them not to do. So they were there for the purposes of testing their faith. And what happens? They failed the test. Well, God's got to do something to try to redeem them, try to bring them back, because that's what God does, right? God wants to save us. He's a saving God. He's a redeeming God. That's, That's who he is. It's just a picture of who God is. Through his love, he, he gives us this thing called grace, and it's because he desires to save us and save us from ourselves. We, we think about saving, we think about our sins, but you know, our sins are just a reflection of ourselves. Our natural self is just a sin, and God is saving us from ourselves. So, I'm going to jump down to Judges chapter 3, beginning of verse 12. It's going to be up on the screen. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Elgin... Eglon uh, of Moab, control of, the Israelite, of Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amal- Amalekites as allies and went up and defeated Israel, Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. So here they're under control of this, of this king. Uh, God has given them over to them, and, and here they are. They're under control, and it says for 18 years they're struggling underneath this wicked king, this evil king. But what happens? It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. Isn't this the picture of our God? That we sin against God, we rebel against God, we go and do our own thing, and then what does God have to do? He rescues us. And this is the picture of who God is. And God is going to use somebody for the purposes of that. Now, who did God use to rescue all of us? He used his son, Jesus Christ, right? And God continues to use each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ to exercise our faith in Jesus Christ to bring others to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, right? Uses us to to be ambassadors of his glory and of his grace. That's how God uses us, just like he used his son. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud uh, to deliver their tribute money to the king Eglon of Moab. So you would read that, and you would just be like, okay, so it's a left-handed dude. So you have to understand something. It's not exactly the way it is today that it was then. So to all my left-handed people here, I love you, okay? Let me say that. It was actually looked on to be a disability if you were left-handed back in those days, right? Uh, The Latin word for sinister actually means left-handed, in case you didn't know that. To be dexterous, the Latin word that that is associated with dexterous means to be right-handed. Did you know that? So to be left-handed was kind of like a plague almost. So I love all you left-handed people, don't get me wrong, but back in those days, it was like you had a handicap if you were left-handed. Okay, so you think, all right, so he's left-handed. So what? So a lot of people left-handed. God can do something with a left-handed person. Well, I want you to know this, that also he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, one of the things about the tribe of Benjamin that is, that is known is that they were ambidextrous. They were taught from a very early age to be able to fight with both hands, that they were able to, to take up their slings and their rocks, and they were able to sling those with their right and with their left hand so they would be more agile and they'd be a more fierce warrior if they could use both hands. And if you just read through that, you wouldn't pick up on that. But what he's saying here is that if this is a guy who was of the tribe of Benjamin that only used his left hand, that probably means there's something wrong with his right hand because he would have been ambidextrous otherwise. 
And he would have used his right and his left hand, but he couldn't use his right, so he just used his left hand. Now, you say, okay, well, so big, big deal. You know, a guy had a lame right hand, maybe, you know, like what's the big deal there? Well, we're going to see how God is going to use this specific thing in order to be able to, to use this man to accomplish God's work. The fact that he is disabled in a way is exactly what God used to be able to bring glory and to bring the people of Israel back to God. So here we see a man who is left-handed. And I'll try to use my left hand today. Let's try to move that way. I'll talk to you with my left hand today. His left hand to accomplish God's purposes and God's glory. And we're going to see this. So what do they do? They said, all right. You take our money, our tribute money to King Eglon, and, uh, and you be responsible for that. So here's a man that God has specifically chosen for this purpose, and now the people have chosen him to take the money to go and, and to King Eglon. Now, okay, immediately at this point in the story, I need to give you a disclaimer. This gets messy, and it gets ugly, and it gets nasty. And, and if you were to watch a movie about this, it probably... Would, would not be rated PG-13. You know, like, I mean, it gets kind of gross. It's grotesque, and I'll, I'll just tell you that ahead of time. Um, but it's in God's Word, and it's in God's Word for a reason. And I will tell you this. Sometimes the gospel's messy. Sometimes the truth is messy. And t- sometimes you've got to cut out some nasty stuff, and it don't look real pretty. And sometimes we shy away from talking about that in church because we really want things to just look pretty in church. But that ain't the reality. Because when you go out there, when you go outside these doors, it ain't always pretty. I don't know if you know that. And when you go and try to share the gospel with somebody, it ain't always pretty. Sometimes they got mess in their lives. Sometimes they got all kinds of junk in their lives, and, and it needs to be cleaned up. And, and God's going to use you for that purpose. And, and, and sometimes we shy away from that going, well, that's messy. I don't know that God could be in that because it's messy. Let me tell you something. God is, is in this world trying to save and redeem people because he's a rescuer, and that's who he is, and that's what we just talked about. Man, you can't rescue somebody if you're not dealing, willing to get your hands dirty a little bit. Am I right? You, I mean, if you look at all of our lives and how messed up and how crazy and all the nasty filthiness is in our lives, then, man, you'll see. You're so glad that God thought enough of us to rescue us and clean away our filth because we, get, we are some nasty, filthy people. So here we look in God's word and we see it gets kind of grotesque. So what? That's reality. That's, that's real, you know? And I'm glad that God's word doesn't shy away from stuff that's real. I'm glad that God's word doesn't shy away from stuff that's nasty and filthy. And I am so glad here in Simple Church that we are, we are people that embrace everything in God's word and not just the pieces that look pretty. I am so thankful that we have people that come in here and say, I'm, I'm willing to hear whatever it is that God has to say, I'm willing to hear it, no matter how nasty, dirty, filthy it may look, because that's real. I mean, we got a bunch of people in here that just, I mean, a lot of times we want to just get real. Am I right about that? There's, there's a lot of places you can go where they don't really like to get real, and that's fine, but I'm telling you in here, it's going to get real and it's going to get nasty sometimes, and we're going to deal with some of the stuff that needs to be dealt with. And that scares some people admittedly, and some people don't stay for that reason. It's just a little too real for them. One of the ways that I know is I'll, I'll talk to them after a service. They visit Simple Church. They say, man, that was amazing. God spoke to me. His Holy Spirit just overwhelmed me. God is, is wrecking my life right now, and then you'll never see them again. It's just a little bit too much reality for them, and they really don't want to have to deal with all that nastiness and filthiness in their lives 
therefore it's easier just to go somewhere else where it's pretty. I'm not saying that to down other churches. I'm saying that because in here, I don't want us to be afraid of the dirty. I don't want us to be afraid of getting our hands dirty. And I don't want us to just try our best to make everything look pretty because that's not real life. It's just not real life. And we got too many families out there that are trying to make their families look pretty when there's a lot of nastiness in there. Am I right? I said that just in passing, but there's a lot of families that just say, well, I'm going to try to pretend like it's nice and it's pretty. In reality, it's pretty ugly, it's pretty nasty, it's pretty filthy. But because they don't talk about it, it stays nasty and ugly and filthy. They don't want to bring it to the surface. Let's not deal with anything. Let's just ignore it and act like it's not really there, and maybe it will go away. We'll sweep it under the rug. Everything will look nice and pretty on top of the rug, even though there's trash underneath the rug, and it's lumpy when you walk across it. Sorry, God just put that on me. I felt like I had to share that. So it gets ugly here. It says in verse 16, So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. And he, he brought the tribute money to Eglin, who was very fat. You're like, okay. Thank you for that. It's real, right? You know that there are fat people in the world? It says it here in the Bible. Just saying, that's just real, okay? Comes to this king who is fat, of course, is what it says. And I think it points that out because we'll see why in just a second. But I want you to know something. So he has this, this dagger that's about a foot long and he straps it to his thigh, right? And he... Because he is left-handed, therefore he has to strap it to his right thigh. And that's the way they would have done it in ancient times because that would have been the best way to grab it, to pull it out, would be from his right thigh. Well, I believe, based on what I see here and the way God uses people and uses things, I believe that that particular thing would have been the reason that he would have been able to get in to see the king and the guards would have searched him, but they wouldn't have searched his right thigh because most people were right-handed. And if they were going to carry a weapon, they would carry it on their left side and not on their right side. Now, that, that's the gospel according to Kenny. I have no proof of that. All I can say is that, that this man was left-handed, and he was able to get into the king, and he was able to carry a two-edged sword that he had made, and he was able to carry it in there, and he was not found out. And I believe wholeheartedly it's because it was on his right thigh and nobody thought to search his right thigh because anybody carrying a weapon would have carried it on their left thigh because most people were right-handed. So you can kind of see what this is setting us up for. He's got a dagger. He's going to see the king, right? After delivering the payment, he takes the payment to the king. Ehud started home with those who helped him carry the tribute, like, so he goes to see the king, he's got a dagger, he gets in to see him, and now he's just, he delivers it and he's going home. Great story, right? Well, thank goodness the chapter isn't over. We still got more to go here. So he starts heading back. Now, I don't know what was going through his mind. I don't know if he got scared, if he chickened out. I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe the opportunity wasn't right. I, I don't know what the situation was. But I think this guy gets a reminder is what happens. And, and, and let, let me tell you this, sometimes when you chicken out, when you give up, when you walk away because you're scared or whatever, you get a second chance. You get a second chance. 
But Ehud reached some stone idols near, near Galgah. He turned back. When he reached the stone idols near Galgal, he turned back. That was the point at which he saw things that were not of his God, and it reminded him of who he served. So he gets to these idols. He's traveling back home, and, and he's thinking, you know, all right, so maybe I chickened out. Maybe I didn't do the right thing, and maybe God was calling me to do something. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. And then he gets to these stone idols, and he's standing there. And I think it hit him. I think it hit him at that point. He said, okay, this is why God brought me to this point. This is why God appointed me to bring the, the gift to the king. The, 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 the two-edged sword that I had made because I felt like God was calling me to do that, I remember now. I remember what I'm supposed to be called to do. And, and my prayer today is this, is that maybe you've been just bebopping along in your life and things have been cool and things have been good and maybe God has put something in front of you right here and say, you remember that you're my people. You remember what I've called you to. Now look at the idols in your life. Look at the things that you're worshiping. Look at the things that are destroying you and the people around you. Look at them hard in the face. And you got a choice. You can either keep on walking or you can turn. The word repentance literally means to turn back and turn the other way and turn towards God. Here this man has a choice. He can either keep going on and act like it's all good and sweep it under the rug or he can do something about it. He can remember the calling on his life that God had put there, and he can do something about it. And he reaches those idols. And I, I, think, he's, I think he's broken on the inside when he sees them because he turns back. He turns back. He came to Eglin and said, I have a secret message for you. So he gets back in to see the king. The guards have already let him in one time. They may or may not have searched him again. My guess is they didn't search his right thigh. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. So this is a secret message for King Eglon. And in some of your translations, it may say that it's a, it's a message from God. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in the cool upstairs room, which if it's a cool upstairs room... I don't know about your house, but in my house, it ain't cool upstairs, especially not this time of the year. It's hot up there, and this man must live a pretty lavish lifestyle if he's in an upstairs room and it's cool. Another one of those things we just kind of glance over, but I think this is an indication of how well this man had it, how well off he was, what kind of king he was, a man that was probably self-centered, and he's, I'm not going to put my throne down on the first floor. I'm going to put it on the second floor, and we're still going to keep it cool up here. So he goes upstairs to the room. King Ehud said, and Ehud said, I have a message from God to you, for you. And King Eglon rose from his seat. So he gets up to listen to what he's going to say. Ehud reached with his left hand and pulled out the dagger, strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. And plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull, it out, pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. It's not a pretty picture, right? Ehud, following the calling of God, what God had impressed upon his heart, that he was going to use him as a rescuer, and it turned out that the job that he called him to was kind of a dirty job. 
It was a dirty job. I want you to know something, that, that the jobs that God, God calls you to, sometimes they're, they're, they're nasty, and they're ugly, and they're dirty. And a lot of times, you don't like the way they look, and a lot of times, you don't want to do them because they're da- nasty and dirty. And I can tell you that some of the places I've cleaned up in this church, man, they are nasty, and they are dirty. But I, 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 I believe wholeheartedly we're supposed to do what God's called us to do. Some of the places we've went, some of the, some of the people that we've talked to, some of the homeless people and people that are addicted to drugs that we've talked to, people that have their eyes completely bloodshot and, and will look me straight in the face and say, I'm on crack right now and I don't want to be. I want God to rescue me. Sometimes it ain't real pretty, y'all. Sometimes it's really nasty. He plunged it to the king's belly. It went so deep that the handle disappeared and his bowels emptied. Some translations say that literally dirt came out of him as his bowels were emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and, and found the doors of the upstairs room locked. So they thought that he, must, that he must be using the latrine in the room. So they waited. They thought he was going to the bathroom, so they didn't want to come in on the king while he's using the bathroom. And they wait outside. And they say, why is that in there? I think it's because the last three words, so they waited. God knew what they were going to think. He knew what they were going to do. He knew the place and the time where, where Ehud would, would be in there with the king. And, and he knew that when he locked the doors, it would give Ehud enough time to escape. So they waited because they thought the king was using the bathroom. When the king didn't come out. After a long delay, they became concerned and got a key and they opened the doors and found their master dead on the floor. And maybe it was just enough time for the, the master to die. Maybe it's just enough time for the king to actually expire. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah. So this time, can you imagine what it was like this time when he passed those idols? Can you imagine? I imagine the dude had a smile on his face. I imagine he was sitting there going, ha, those idols, those idols that that we used to worship, the king that set us up to worship those idols, he is dead now. As a result of me being obedient to God, and as a result of me doing what God has called me to do, even though it was nasty, I did it. And now he goes past those idols, and those idols now become a picture, instead of a picture of conviction, they become a picture of joy. Now think about your life and your sin. Think about the way that this, that this translates to you and to me. You see, there's dirty, nasty, filthy things in our lives. Things that are displeasing to God, things that, 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 that are just disgusting to the rest of us as well. And here, what do we see? We see this man who does what God's called him to do. He stops what's going on in his life. Long enough to listen to God. Long enough to say that, God, I know that you're calling me to do something, and I'm going to respond. I know that you're calling me to take the next step, so I'm going to do something. And then what does he do? He goes. They give him the money. and say, you, you go take our, our offering to the king. So God is, is orchestrating this thing, is setting up things for him. He makes a two-edged sword. He goes to the king and maybe he chickens out. Maybe he, 
you know, says, yeah, this is too hard. Maybe he gets scared. Maybe he says, they're going to kill me, so I'm not sure if I want to do this or not. And then he starts walking towards those stone idols. And I think with every step, the closer he gets to those stone idols, the things that represent the sin in his life, I think the closer he gets to them, the more convicted he feels about the things in his life. I think the closer he gets to those things that are standing right in front of his face, the more convicted he feels. Like the sin in our lives. As God speaks to you through his word, as he challenges you with the things that he said in his word, the conviction starts to grow, right? The heartache starts to grow. The things that that you know are displeasing to God, the things that you know are rebellious to God, it starts to grow. And it's right there in front of your face. And you have a choice. You always have a choice. This is a voluntary activity coming into Simple Church. You have a choice as to whether or not you'll say, you know what, I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to turn. Or you can say, man, I'm just going to go home and sweep it under the rug and act like it never happened. To act like maybe this calling on God wasn't a calling of my life by God. It wasn't real, that it was something else. That maybe it was just a feeling or maybe it was something else. But this guy got to those stone idols. He said, no, I got to do something. So he turned. He turned and he went back to do the dirty work. It wasn't pretty what he was called to do. It wasn't elegant. But God had called him to do something and he did it. Of you and your life, me and my life, God calls us to, to deal with the dirty, the nasty, the filthy stuff. When we see the idols that represent all of that sin in our life, we've got a choice is whether we go and continue on and sweep them under the rug or we turn and we go back and we do something about them. Here this man did something about it. The question for you today is, will you do something about it? You see, God had, from the very beginning, God had planned this man who could only use his left hand. He was disabled. He couldn't use his right. Well, God used that very plan to say, you're my, per- you're my person. You're my man. You're, you're the go-to man for this particular situation, and I am going to use you. Still, even through all of that, he had the choice as whether or not he would respond or not. He finally made that choice. He said, you know what? I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. And he went back and he did it. And, and now, now that he approaches those idols, now every step that he takes towards those idols is not a step of conviction, but now is a step of joy. So now you, that represents the way that I used to be. That represents the way that I was. But I am no longer that person. I am no longer the person that looks at those idols and and I'm convicted by them. Now I am the person that looks at those idols and I find joy in them because I was able to overcome, through the power of God, I was able to overcome those idols. It was nasty and it was ugly and I went through all the dirty work to try to get there, but I got there. I got there and now those idols, those things that I used to worship, those things I used to love, now they got a different appearance to me now. Now they represent the victory that I get through God. Whatever nastiness, whatever filthiness, whatever idols you have in your life, I want you to know that God can use those things to remind you of the victory that you have through Christ Jesus. You see, His Son was given for you. Jesus Christ died for you so that all the nastiness and all the filthiness can be put on Him. That when his arms and his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, it was for you so that you could be made righteous. That you could be made perfect in the eyes of God. That's why 
That's why the cross looks different. That's why people wear the cross around their neck a lot of times. It was an instrument of torture. And now it is an instrument of victory. You see what happens when God comes in and God takes those things that used to be instruments of torture and now they're instruments of His glory. That could be your life. That could be you. That could be your sin. You have that choice today. Will you sweep it under the rug or will you respond to God and let Him use it for His glory? The choice is yours. The choice is yours. Father, God, you have spoken. You've said everything there is to say. God, I thank you for the testimony of this man, the wild disabled. God, he had a handicap. Lord, he was able to use that to bring you glory. But it was all dependent upon his response. It was all dependent upon whether he would say yes to you or no to you. God, I thank you for the testimony of you that even when it got nasty, he said yes. He said, I'll do what God has called me to do. Because of that, we can see his testimony. We can see the testimony of what it means to respond to God. So, Lord, today, I know there are people here that look at their sins, they look at the things that they worship, and they see it as nasty, and they see it as filthy. Well, God, today, I pray that you would bring them victory. I pray that they would see it through the eyes of Jesus Christ, that they would have faith in Jesus Christ, and they would come to you. And, God, you would turn those idols turn those things that show defeat you would turn them into into pictures of victory in our lives so Lord Jesus move in people's lives right now I pray that we respond as you've called us to respond and that you receive glory